This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out The Noom Kitchen for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Julia Keller was only 19 years old when she graduated from college. And while that makes me sound like I was some kind of kid genius, some prodigy, that really wasn't the case. I just had gone through and and finished all the coursework. So she was barely an adult when she headed to grad school at West Virginia University. She was pursuing a doctoral degree in English literature. The university was about three hours away from Julia's hometown, and it was her first time living on her own. And it quickly became clear that this was a total disaster. Julia felt totally overwhelmed. She hated her classes, the university, her apartment. And eventually, she began to hate herself. But she tried to stick it out. She became her own drill sergeant, gave herself motivational speeches, constantly reminding herself that she could persevere. But it wasn't working. Everything culminated in one terrible night when I was sitting on the floor cross-legged, just really sobbing. I was homesick. I was miserable. I was kind of desperate. But I realized I was very much afraid to admit that because I didn't want to be called a quitter. Julia called her dad that night to come pick her up. And much to her surprise, he said yes. The trouble was I was not very emotionally mature, which I didn't realize. I'd never lived away from home. She went back to her parents' house and hid in her room for a month, hoping none of her friends would find out she had dropped out of school. But after the shame subsided, Julia felt relieved. She went on to work at the Chicago Tribune. She became a successful author. And she did eventually go back to grad school. This time, she liked it, and she finished. But she held on to the memory of that low point in West Virginia because she thinks it revealed an important insight. Looking back, though, recalling my desperation is when I first began to critique this idea of quitting Who said it's bad? Where do we get this idea? Why is grit presented as this unalloyed good? Julia talks about this in her new book, Quitting, A Life Strategy, The Myth of Perseverance and How the New Science of Giving Up Can Set You Free. And it seemed to me that we're kind of looking at things all wrong, because when something isn't working out, our bodies and often even our spirit tells us so. It says, this isn't right. You need to make a change. But we're faced with these cultural ideas that quitting is bad. And it can create a really, uh, I think, a very stressful situation, almost kind of a, a spiritual crisis, when we know in our mind and our heart what we need to do. The dilemma of should I stay or should I go can be so challenging. Sometimes sticking it out can be really rewarding in the end. Other times, you just have to walk away. It's also a topic that seems to be on lots of people's minds. People are quitting jobs at higher rates than before. And we've all heard about quiet quitting and the great resignation. On this episode, quitting, why we do it, when it's the right choice, and what happens next. First up, let's stick with journalist and author Julia Keller and her new book. It features people's stories about quitting, Julia's own experiences, and new research on the topic. 
If you think back to that time when you decided to quit grad school, what would have happened if you had stayed? Have you thought about sort of the alternative life path? Oh, I have indeed. You know, I always love that particular scenario in in films and in books. But in this case, I think it would have been quite dire. I try not to be too dramatic when I think about it, but sometimes I do get kind of a, you know, a cold clutch in the belly when I think about it because I really was at such a low emotional ebb. I now know, with having a, a few years have gone by, that I was displaying classic signs of, of someone who really was in crisis. I was sleeping a great deal. I remember just not being able to wake up. I think something terrible would have happened, and I, I, I do, I do. And it's kind of a, a difficult thing to think about, but I've had to think about it. But when I get to difficult times in life, I think back to then, and I think quitting was the right thing to do. Quitting has gotten a bad rap in our society, in our culture. You mentioned earlier the kind of shame you felt when you quit grad school, even though you knew it was right. So where does that come from, this sense that quitting is for losers, to put it bluntly? When I trace the history of quitting, quitting got it a really good polish in the middle of the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution was making a very, very few people at the top extraordinarily wealthy, whereas the vast majority of the population, I'm talking about Britain and, and Europe at this time, the vast majority of people at the bottom were living in just horrific poverty and, and numbing despair. There were people, good people, of course, they look at that situation and they say, well, why is that? Well, if you can persuade people that success in life comes from hard work, not because they happen to have been born white in a predominantly white culture, where white culture predominates, born male, or all the things that give you a leg up in the culture. If you can persuade them that it isn't that, it's because they worked harder. Those people at the top worked harder. We're given this message all the time. On the other hand, you know, if I think about education or schooling or raising children, there is an importance to messages like, you know, try again, try again, don't give up. And I've certainly said that to my kids when I'm trying to get them to study math or something like that. You know, so sure, these messages are sometimes they are also helpful. Oh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. This, again, is the great fascinating, exciting challenge of, of being a parent. How do you know? You know, in the book, I talk about some examples of parents that I spoke with, and that's what they had to face. Say you've got a, a child that wants to quit a particular sport. A friend of mine's son played football and didn't like it and wanted to quit. And she was like, no, wait a minute. You know, we bought all this equipment. We go to all your games. Well, why, why are you wanting to quit? You're not, you're not just going to sit at home, you know, playing video games and watching YouTube videos. What, what's going on here? It turned out It wasn't the game he wanted to quit. It wasn't even the physicality. He loved being part of a team. What he didn't like specifically was football. He was a big kid. He didn't like hurting other people. And she said, okay, fine, let's find another sport. So my point is the issue is rarely just quitting. If you're more attentive and you maybe listen to what someone's saying and ask them to go a little deeper too and say, is it just a bad day? You're just feeling kind of lazy today? It's okay, but that's not a reason to quit. And invariably, there's another conversation that's kind of waiting at the next layer down below that have been waiting to have with a parent and a child or maybe with a, you know, with a spouse or, or someone who's facing a big quitting decision in life. Rarely is it just the superficial of like, yeah, I'm just sick of this. I want out. There's usually something else going on. The thing about quitting is that I guess it feels really hard to know 
when is it really time to quit and when am I just sort of having a moment of struggle and if I push a little bit harder, I can make it past a hurdle and then I will be happy because that happens too, right? So how do we know when it's right to quit? What are some of the signs that you have discovered? You know, that's a wonderful question because, of course, that is one of the great challenges of life to know that particular question when is is he just going through a hard time and you do need to push through? Because that does happen, as you say. I mean, there is such a thing as resilience. And it is important not to quit at the first sign, you know, the first hard day. It'd be like, you know, a marriage. And the first time you have an argument saying, that's it, I'm out of here. I mean, of course you wouldn't do that. <laughs> One thing I talk about in the book is listening to your body. Our bodies give us signals. They let us know. There are physiological signs that we get when we know that it really is time to go. When something is taking a physical toll the sleeping all the time. So it isn't just a matter of, of uh, being a, a difficult time and a hard moment, but our bodies give us very clear physical and spiritual, and I would say even, even emotional and intellectual signs when we really do need to pick another course. So it's a matter of listening perhaps more attentively instead of just to the superficial responses to a difficult time. You feature in the book these moments that you call white flag moments. What are they, and do they have anything in common from all the different people that you spoke to for the book? You know, that was one of my favorite things to do, was to ask people about that one moment to kind of take it out from the, the surrounding narrative and say, what was that one moment when you made that decision? How did you know? When did you know? Was there one thing? Was there one trigger? Was there one thing that just pushed you over the edge? And those were invariably the most fascinating stories I heard, people saying, it was this, it was that, it was I knew when I, you know, one woman mentioned sitting in her boss's office and eh, kind of didn't like her job. And out the window, she saw a big hunk of snow. You know, in Chicago, the snow is kind of gray and dirty. And for some reason, it was just seeing that hunk of snow. And she realized her thought was, I kind of wish that snow were a monster and it would come and just kind of like bite my boss's head off. And she thought, okay, maybe I'm at the point where I need to go. That was her, that was what, it was that one moment when she saw a big hunk of dirty snow. So if you can imagine, you know, all of life to turn on a hunk of dirty snow, but why not? And did those moments have anything in common? Were there common threads? Mm. The people were ready for that. You have to be ready. I mean, I know moments sometimes seem to catch us off guard, but in truth, there's always something going on in the background. You know, it's like a computer that's working in the background all the time. Even if you're not actively working on it, it's working in the background. That if you turn your attention to what's really going on inside, the woman sitting there that I mentioned in the boss's office, she had to be ready to take that step. So it's not just the dirty snow, but it was the fact that she was looking out the window and had already been thinking about other options for her life, other things she might do. She'd thought a long time about whether this job was right for her. She thought it wasn't, but she wasn't quite motivated enough. So the common thread, I would say, is that attentiveness. Again, to listen, not just to you know, a small, still voice within, but even your own body. You know, How am I feeling? Is my body sending me signals that I need to quit? You profile a woman named Michelle Weldon who has learned a lot about quitting and what it means. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about her. Yes, indeed. She was a, she is a, a very uh, a bright, uh, highly opinionated woman with a lot of 
you know, ideas about the world and never thought she'd find herself in the situation she was in, which is she and her husband were not getting along and pretty soon that not getting along spiraled into a really toxic situation. Her husband was physically and emotionally abusive, but Michelle didn't think of herself as a quitter. She kept thinking she could fix the situation, make it better somehow, and she didn't want to be a single mom. She had three sons, and she thought, I, I can't leave. I can't do it. I can't quit this marriage. There's too much at stake. She knew all the stats about what happens to single women raising children. And yet she got to the point, and she decided, I must do this. And she kind of took her own life in her own hands and did that. And of course, there were rough moments. It wasn't like suddenly her life became golden and sparkling and wonderful. But that's why I need to emphasize, it wasn't that everything got wonderful right away. That's not what it means. Quitting doesn't mean that your situation immediately improves. It means that whether it improves or not, it's your doing. You're in charge and you've done it. I guess a lot of us are looking for liberation in some way, shape, or form when we quit. We want to be free of something. We want a fresh start. But I, I guess it feels much more like a mixed bag when you first quit. Oh, yes, I think so. And I, I, I really try to make that point very emphatically because I can imagine, you know, having having copies of my book angrily hurled at my head when I'm walking along one day and someone saying, look what happened to me, look where I am now. It's like, absolutely. I mean, things can work out or not work out. I have a whole chapter on that. It's called Things Just Happen. But again, I think that when you quit and when it's you that did it, you're the one who did it. So there's no one to blame. There's no one to look to. And to, But by the same token, you know that you're in charge and in control. So even if it doesn't work out and you think, well, that didn't work, I'll try something else, you're doing it. You're in command. And I do think your word liberation is a good one. We're all looking for that. You know, we're all trapped inside something, you know, maybe several children and no partner to help out or the need to earn a living. We're all trapped inside something. But even within that little cage, we can grab whatever fragile bit of agency that's out there. And I think it can be enormously helpful. And there is some joy even within perhaps some of the bad consequences of uh, having made a big decision to quit. That's journalist and author Julia Keller. Her new book is called Quitting, A Life Strategy, The Myth of Perseverance and How the New Science of Giving Up Can Set You Free. Coming up, we'll talk more with Julia and find out what scientists are learning about quitting. An animal lives on a very thin margin of survival and has to make a decision every day about whether an expenditure of energy is going to have a payoff in terms of nutrition. That's next on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. 
you'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about quitting, why we quit, and when it's the right choice. My guest is journalist Julia Keller. Her new book is Quitting, A Life Strategy. The book features people's stories about quitting, everything from jobs to marriages, but it also digs into the science, what we know about what happens in the brain once we decide to give up. As humans, we have prized perseverance, right? And we have these messages in the bigger culture, in our families, about sticking it out, about grit and all those things. But you also looked to nature, to different animals to see how grit and quitting on the other side shows up. Yes, indeed. We see a persevering animal is not a particularly good thing. An animal lives on a very thin margin of survival and has to make a decision every day about whether an expenditure of energy is going to have a payoff in terms of nutrition. That animal has two goals, as as many of the scientists I spoke with talked to, to eat and to not be eaten. It's a very simple goal. (laughs) And if they spend too long after a particular kind of food, they're not going to make it. So we do see those examples in nature again and again and again, that a gritty animal is an animal that can't survive. An animal has to make those decisions all the time. Time to quit, time to move on. Scientists have studied quitting and the brain by looking at zebrafish, tiny minnows that are found in Southeast Asia. They have translucent bodies before maturing, so scientists often use them to see how neurons fire in the brain. There was an experiment done by Dr. Misha Ahrens at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute that was very, very profoundly revelatory in terms of neuroscience discoveries. He would notice how zebrafish would sometimes just stop and he would see which particular cells in the brain and where they were were lighting up. You know, how does the brain make that decision to quit? So what he needed to do was to get the zebrafish to do it again. So how do you get a zebrafish to quit? Well, it was a very, very clever experiment. It was basically a virtual reality setting with a projection at the bottom of the tank that created the illusion that the fish were swimming against a strong current and not going anywhere. They would go into what uh, Dr. Ahrens called a state of futility-induced passivity. And the fish would stop and whatever was going on in the little fish brain, kind of think about it a little bit before it would start again. So it's these very, very precise 
and intricate neuroscience experiments that have enabled researchers to know where in the brain we quit. And of course, we extrapolate with humans with this. And we now have a general idea of where in the brain our particular brain cells will react and cause us to quit. And when does that point come? And it's an important thing to find out, of course, when you're doing addiction studies at the University of Washington. And Dr. Michael Brukus is working with addiction studies, trying to find where is that trigger? Why is it that those of us who aren't burdened with a difficulty with alcohol are able to stop and to quit after, say, a bit of alcohol where someone else is not able to quit? What's happening in the brain? What's happening at that brain cell level? And that's why these studies are so important because the hope is that we'll be able to manipulate these brain cells and help people who suffer from addiction issues or other kind of neurological issues as well. So when we look to nature, quitting looks actually like the smart strategy, right? You're you're not going anywhere. You're maybe even going backwards. You're expending too much energy. So it makes perfect sense to do something else. Yes. But then when we contemplate quitting in our own lives, there's often just this narrative about it that drags everything down. You know, what if this means that I'm really not good enough or this means that, you know, I can't cut it? It's really toxic on some level. Oh, it totally is. And I, I'm glad you used that word narrative. That's the perfect word because so many of our entertainment products preach that. Uh, when you think of it, we have you know movies like True Grit, High Noon, and all these films that preach the same thing. Hang in there. Rocky, all the Rocky <laughs> films. Hang in there. Don't quit. We valorize grit and perseverance, and we demonize quitting. Now, that's fine for a fun movie, but it really does have, uh, I think, kind of an insidious effect on our own lives when we say, well, I, I can't quit. I can't or think of people in marriages that aren't working out. They might be persuaded to stay just because, well, you don't want to look like a loser or you don't. But as we all know, some things were just not meant to be. And that's the thing I try to emphasize as well. I'm not just talking about jobs. I mean, that's kind of an easy thing to think of, well, quit or not quit. Often quitting can also be a matter of quitting one idea for another, changing a political party, changing a religious belief. I talked to many people who had made those kinds of changes too. Any sort of a change that you're compelled to make after long reflection, after kind of a deep contemplation of your own needs and desires and whether this is leading you in a place you want to go, kind of look, as you suggest, look at the animal world for our guide in this rather than looking at True Grit or Rocky Fourteen. What is brain science learning about quitting? You hinted earlier at the regions that seem to be involved in quitting that are affected. So what are we figuring out there? I think one of the things that, that was really clear to me is in talking with several of the neuroscientists that I quote and whose work that I was able to read about is that quitting is a very, very complex thing we ask the brain to do. It looks simple. It seems like an on-off switch. It isn't. All of these regions of the brain are all interconnected. I always think of it as kind of like a daisy chain model. I mean, everything is interconnected within the brain. So we don't do anything just by itself. I guess on some level, it's a calculation of benefits and drawbacks, right? So you're trying to calculate the pluses and the minuses. That's why it seems simple at first. But then even doing that over some basic thing in my life, there are immediately not two doors, but 17 that I could potentially open, you know, so so it gets very complicated very quickly. 
No, that's a great way of putting it, the number of doors, because I make that point in there that it isn't a binary, a yes or no, stay or go, now or never. It's almost never that. I refer to it as the quasi-quit, which sounds a little bit like quiet quitting, which it isn't. This actually predated that by a couple of years. By quasi-quitting, I mean to think of quitting as on a rheostat dial, not an on-off switch. You can go up a little bit and down a little bit. You can change your situation. You can recalibrate. You can reconnoiter without having to just completely change everything all at once. And, you know, when you mentioned all the different cost-benefit analyses that we need to make, that's quite right. And I use the example, I mean, I make the analogy to Simone Biles in the 2021 Tokyo Olympics. As we all know, uh, gymnastics at that elite level is incredibly perilous. It is a life or death proposition when you're doing those midair maneuvers. And so Simone Biles made that calculation. She looked at what was going on. She realized that she wasn't in a place that she needed to be in order to do this enormously difficult maneuver, many of which she pioneered. And even an athlete of her incredible caliber realized, I'm just not ready to do this. So she stood down. She wanted to be able to continue her career was simply not worth the risk of catastrophic injury or death. What are some questions that people can ask themselves that we can all ask ourselves when we are in a situation where we we feel like maybe it's time to quit, but we just don't know? I quote a physician in my book because I, I wanted to interview a physician whose specialty was to deal with physicians who wanted to quit. During the pandemic, we know a great many people left the healthcare professions because they were burnt out. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible strain and stress on people in healthcare positions. His answer when physicians come in and want to quit is, quit to what? He's saying to think beyond the quit. He wouldn't ever try to talk them out of it. He'd just say, okay, you want to quit. I hear that. You're frustrated. You want to fling that stethoscope in the nearest trash can. But quit to what? That's a good question, I think, to start with is quit to what? What's going to lie beyond the quit? And the other thing I mentioned earlier is that to listen to your body as well as your mind. I mean, intellectually, you can say, all right, it's time to get out of here. I'm, you know, I'm not being paid enough. I think my gifts and my talents are not really being used. I don't like the way this place is being run. That's one question. But the other question is, how do I individually feel? And to look to the body and the spirit, as well as the pay stub, as well as these things that are a little more obvious. What, what, what is the spiritual state of affairs right here? If my life ended today, would I feel that I had that I had spent it well. And I guess also understanding how deeply all of this is interwoven with our sense of identity. A lot of times, especially when it comes to jobs or professions that we've chosen, that all becomes part of the mosaic that we think makes up me, you know. And then to quit any part of that also gets to that foundation, you know. Oh, and I love that word you use, mosaic. That's a beautiful word. I I love that word. I need to start working that into conversation more. <laughs> I know when I first left the Chicago Tribune, I'd been the chief book critic there, staff writer. I had a lot of pride about that. You know, I was born and raised in a small town in West Virginia, and here I was. I was literary critic at the Chicago Tribune. Once I left the Tribune, which was the absolute right decision for me at the time, I resigned from the Tribune, but I was aware of just what you're saying. I mean, that had been so much a part of my identity. I did not expect that. I was on a plane once and someone asked me what I did. Now, 
the reality was at that point I was writing novels and you know I had all these high aspirations, but I caught myself saying, oh, I'm, a, I'm the literary critic at the Chicago Tribune. And as soon as I said it, I thought, you're a liar. <laughs> you're not that anymore. Why did you say that? It was because it was so much a part of my identity. And I had not realized that until that moment sitting on that plane and the, very, the person in the next seat very innocently asked me what I did for a living. If you think about all the things you've learned since that day when you quit grad school, what are your big thoughts on, you know, quitting, on approaching it, kind of in summary of everything you've learned? How do you approach it now? I think to not be so judgmental, because I would find myself all the time sitting in judgment of people. Just this idea that I know everything. It's like, look out world, put me in charge. I know it all. I found it quite humbling to listen to hundreds and hundreds of people's stories about crossroads, about threshold moments, about portals into new worlds, and that the courage it takes to make large changes, of course, but even the small changes. And it really was humbling. I said, that's the word that comes to mind. And I should remind you as well that, I mean, I did return to grad school so that quitting is also never final. If it's something you think, well, that's it, I'm out of here. No. And heaven knows, we all know from what Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez, even relationships you you leave, you might come back to. I mean, there is always another chance. While you breathe, you hope. There's always another chance at anything. So again, I guess I would summarize it that way. Be less judgmental. Let's be a little kinder to other people. Let's realize that they're having struggles and challenges of which we have no idea and we can't know. We're not inside their skin. And also to remember that there are always do-overs. You can always return to something or not return to something or return as a different person with a different attitude, that there are many, many ways to live a life and to be alive in this world. Julia Keller is a writer and the author of Quitting, A Life Strategy. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Making the decision to quit can be challenging. You don't want to feel like you've given up before really trying. Or maybe you just don't want to let others down. But sometimes making that choice becomes a necessity because your body and its limitations demand that you do it. Nicole Curry has this profile of a Philadelphia woman who had to withdraw from many aspects of her life. We're calling her Susanna to protect her privacy. Susanna thought she had her trip to the grocery store perfectly planned. She mapped it out. The store was just a few blocks away from her home. She was only going to grab a few items so that the grocery bag would be light enough to carry. But when she began to walk back home, the thing that she was trying to avoid, it happened anyway. It was just this like pain and heaviness that overcame my muscles, like starting in my legs and then traveling up. The pain traveled to her chest, down her arms, until it encompassed her entire body. She was forced to stop walking and wait it out. It just feels like your feet are in mud. You either can't take one step further or it would be excruciating too. Even thinking about moving makes you want to cry. <laughs> It's just like your brain is trying to send signals to your body to do something, and it just can't. So yeah, it just felt kind of like a sack of potatoes. This debilitating pain 
which later leads to total exhaustion for Susanna, is a common symptom of long COVID. She's been a long hauler since December 2021. It all started when a mild case of COVID led to chronic fatigue. I mean, I was practically bedridden for the first few weeks. It was hard for me to lift my arms up, then it was hard for me to sit up, then it was hard for me to like eat. She was diagnosed with long COVID a few months later. And once she was on her feet again, she went to see a specialist at the post-COVID assessment and recovery clinic at Penn Medicine in Philadelphia. I expected an answer. I expected to hear, this is what's happening to you. Here's how we treat it. And this is how long you can expect to get better. Um, And that's definitely not what happened. They told her that there was no treatment for her symptoms. And to hear the like the specialist telling you that is, you know, not something that you want to hear. <laughs> um, it is kind of scary because they don't know what's going on or, or why these things are happening. The only advice this clinic did have for Susanna was to basically quit, withdraw from some of her activities to cope with the fatigue. This strategy is called pacing like the phrase, pace yourself. The first time I heard about pacing, I probably rolled my eyes (laughs) a little bit just because it's like, duh. Like if you're experiencing pain doing these things, just don't do them. But the doctors told Susanna that this actually works. They didn't know how, but had many patients who used it and got better. So she took their advice. Susanna planned out her every move. Outside of work, she disengaged with activities she could no longer do, like walking her dog, going for long hikes, or one of her favorite and satisfying hobbies, assembling IKEA furniture. You have to kind of like take an inventory of your resources. And that was never something I ever had to think of before. You know, you just really take for granted what you're capable of. And it can be hard picking and choosing what you have the ability to do. And crossing off half of her to-do list began to take an emotional toll on Susanna. She's best described as a doer, a person who likes to challenge herself. And adjusting to long COVID was beginning to feel like she was losing a core element of who she was. I think in my generation, like I was a latchkey kid. So I was by myself a lot. And like really being able to like fend for yourself was important. When you grow up in that kind of environment, you kind of just feel like self-sufficient and like, you know, you don't need anybody else's help. Having long COVID takes like all of that away. Not just like the physical, like fitness aspect, but like really being in control of your body and, you know, being independent. Susanna's long COVID symptoms lasted for almost a year. She began to feel more like herself towards the end of 2022, but then she got COVID again. And even though you're less likely to develop long COVID twice, Susanna did. This time was different. She suffered from nerve issues. 
It was like her body would randomly quit on her with little to no warning. One time, she suddenly dropped a mug that she was holding. At another time, she collapsed while getting ready for a party. Her symptoms were unpredictable and really scary. Her struggle to regain a sense of self-government came to a head one evening when she was faced with a dilemma. I had to pick whether I was able to cook dinner or wash my hair. This was a decision she had dealt with before, and she hated when it came up. Susanna worked in an office where her hair had to look presentable, neat, and clean. But at the same time, she had to eat, so she made dinner. And I just had a moment where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to cut my hair off. I, I can't live like this anymore. I can't live, like, constantly in pain, like, struggling to do little things. Soon, Susanna found herself sitting in a salon chair, telling her stylist to chop off her shag-styled blonde hair, an effort to make washing and styling her hair much easier. The stylist tried to talk her out of it, but Susanna insisted. She said it was the most practical choice, even if she didn't like it. And underneath this decision was worry. I totally thought I was going to (laughs) cry. I am a very shy, introverted person. And taking your hair away, you feel extremely exposed. There's nothing to hide behind. It really changes the way that you are in the world. But once her hair was cut and Susanna saw herself, sadness didn't overcome her. She didn't cry like she thought she would. A sense of liberation and freedom crept into her mind, feelings she had missed dearly. I felt trapped and beholden to my body. Cutting my hair was like, I feel like it was just like powerful. It was like regaining that power. Months later, I checked in with Susanna. She still has long COVID and is still rocking her buzz cut. I asked her if she was looking forward to getting better with time, and she quickly said no. She said long COVID recovery was far from linear, and with few proven methods to treat her symptoms, it'd be best to just focus on what she can do to make her condition less debilitating. For The Pulse, I'm Nicole Curry. Coming up, we'll meet a young man who left home and left everything behind, and we'll find out what he learned about quitting. One of my biggest fears has always been like, I don't want to be old and not able to do this anymore and just look back on these years with regret. That's next on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor Lisa in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams designed with your health and the planet in mind. 
Visit leesa.com to learn more. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Delta Airlines. When you think about it, half the trips the world takes are trips home, and those at Delta are travelers just like you. That's why they try to make you feel at home long before you even get there. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Project Lead the Way. Today's world is driven by STEM. At Project Lead the Way, they believe learning by doing helps every student in every grade be STEM successful. Learn more at pltw.org slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about quitting, why we quit, and when it's the right choice. Two years ago, as the pandemic dragged on, Pulse intern Alan Hinnich and his friend Max Strickberger were frustrated with their online college courses. It felt isolating, not like the true college experience they had signed up for. So they decided to quit. Well, not totally, but to take a semester off. They hit the road, traveling from their home state of Maryland all the way to Utah to interview young adults about their lives during this challenging time. They spoke to more than 80 people across the country, and along the way, they met a young hitchhiker who had left everything behind to become a serial quitter of sorts. Here's Alan. I met Julius Bador in Santa Fe, New Mexico in April of 2021. Julius was 19 years old and had recently left his hometown of Madison, Wisconsin. It was an abrupt departure. He had lost his job, quit his relationship, left it all behind. I was like, yeah, I'm just leaving because this place sucks. So I just told all my friends, told my girlfriend she was really pissed off. His decision seemed to come out of nowhere, but it was really a breaking point after struggling for years with depressive thoughts and the trauma of his parents' divorce. We moved a lot, especially with my dad. I think I moved every year I was in middle school and high school. I was like either sleeping in the same bed with him, in my grandparents' attic, or on the floor. I remember I couldn't really go outside in that neighborhood. People were getting killed in front of the house. While the pandemic was at its peak, Julius felt suicidal. Having that thought felt good. But then he came across a video on his phone a hitchhiker documentary on Vice, directed by David Cho. It's about these two grungy guys traveling cross-country with no money. I'm David Cho. We're going cross-country. We're going across America. We accept uh, all rides for free, hopping trains, hitchhiking on cars, flying on planes. We're just not going to pay for any of them. Something inside Julius clicked, and after watching that, he couldn't think about anything else, a life on the road. So I was all like, yeah, I'll give that a shot. Why not? You know, like, my life sucks, so I don't really care if something happens to me, I'm just, I just want to have fun. One of my biggest fears has always been, like, I don't want to be old and not able to do this anymore and just look back on these years with regret. 
Before leaving, his dad told him that he couldn't just run away from himself. No matter how far away he tried to go, his problems would just follow. But nothing could stop Julius. With only his backpack, guitar, and phone, Julius traveled to Montana, Colorado, and then New Mexico. That's where my friend Max and I met him by chance at a hostel in Santa Fe. He was the receptionist, kind of resembled a young and disheveled Jack Kerouac with a slim boyish face. Turns out Julius is a Kerouac fan, and he told us Dharma Bums is one of his favorite books. When we stepped out into the courtyard to talk, the world seemed so wide reflected in his crystal blue eyes. A lot of cool happened to me in traveling. I went out to Montana, best decision I've ever made. Like, holy I had no idea life could be so much fun. I was like just dreaming about it. A year on the road forced Julius through life's polarities in a whirlwind. Depression and bliss, resilience, fragility. He hitchhiked thousands of miles, climbed mountains, and busked on the street with his guitar to earn some cash. He met other drifting travelers. Every day brought something new and unexpected, though not always positive. Like, I mean, it is extremely romanticized. There's a lot of bull that comes through with it. Like, you know, sleeping outside, it's not that fun sometimes. It can be kind of cold. When we met him, he had worked the hostel job for just a few months, and now he was headed to work with the Conservation Corps in Vermont. His life seemed like a cycle of discontinuity, quitting one thing for another, chasing the next adventure. I'm just so excited to go to Vermont, and like, so positive, like the world is beautiful now. Like, sorry to be all hippy-dippy or whatever, but it's like, (laughs) the world is beautiful, and I'm like, I'm so excited. That's where our story ended in 2021. Max and I drove further west to do more interviews, and Julius went east to Vermont. So what have you been up to since we saw you in Santa Fe? I know two years feels like a long Exactly two years after parting ways, I gave Julius a call. To my surprise, he was back in Madison, his hometown. I think I was there for like another month. And then... Julius told me he kept up the nomadic life. He only stayed in Vermont for the summer, then kept hitchhiking cross-country, working different jobs in different states. Eventually, he ended up back in Santa Fe to live with a new girlfriend. She was going to come work at the hostel, and then we both discovered we were both from Madison, from like the same side of town, just really insane. I was just head over heels for this girl, so I was just super happy, and that was the best I'd ever felt in my life. They moved back to Wisconsin together. He started working a new construction job, which he was really good at, charismatic and organized. He was so good that his bosses chose him to lead his own construction site at just 20 years old. Everyone else was like mid-20s, late-20s. I was definitely the, the youngest person. But at the same time, his relationship was getting more difficult. That's when it started to crumble apart. His girlfriend broke up with him. And that's when I really started to discover more about how my brain works. She was like my first love, and I was really heartbroken. And I just started, I started drinking a lot. And I was like, yeah, life, everything just feels so much better when I'm drunk. Like, no, because, like, that's how it works. <laughs> so it's like, oh, why don't I just do this all the time and I'll feel great? So that's what I did. Because that doesn't have any consequences, right? Buying alcohol was no problem, even though he was under 21. Man, I sound like such like a, like I'm in an AA meeting whenever I talk about it. Because it's like, yeah, it just creeps up on you. Yeah, next thing you know, you're black out in a f***ing graveyard or something. It's like, 
but that's actually how it works. And it's like, it's very much just like youthful ignorance of being like, I won't let it destroy me because I'm Julius. I got a handle on this. I mean, I did have a handle, but I did not have it under control. But I'm, I remember my my turning point was being at work, having withdrawals, shaking, trying to take my measurements, but I couldn't hold my pencil still. Julius was leading a construction site two hours away from Madison in Galena, Illinois, and he was still heartbroken and drinking on the job. And I was like, man, this sucks. And this is like pathetic, man. I'm so sick of being hung up on this one girl. So from that point on, I didn't drink any hard liquor. He got into therapy and came clean to his bosses, told them he was going to quit drinking, and it strengthened their trust. They even offered him to lead new construction projects in Minneapolis and Chicago. But Julius had something else on his mind. And I was like, hey, by the way, I'm going to leave in four months. He quit his job again, this time to hike the PCT, the Pacific Crest Trail, which stretches more than 2,600 miles from the U.S.-Mexico border up to Canada. If you realize something is not right for you, then quitting is like, like the first step turning a new leaf, it's recognizing that you are going to make a change. The American West took up a new significance in his life as the place that he could return to time and time again to mature and to change his state of mind. I feel like if you want to change something, getting new scenery is definitely a, it's a good place to start because it, it's, it just realizes that things do change, even if it's just in the landscape. And it's easier to make a change when you go somewhere new. So I hiked the PCT. I also hitchhiked the Oregon coast. He even jumped on a freight train through Montana. And I had the notion in my head where I was like, yeah, I'm never going to come back to Wisconsin and I'm just going to live out west. But then after hiking that trail and really reflecting on myself, I was like, you know what? I've got, I actually like Wisconsin. My family's there. Got a lot of support. My, I love my job there. I could very, very well see, see myself in Wisconsin forever. He thought about sitting around the fire with his dad, smoking cigarettes. And I didn't realize how much I'd missed him. The older I get and the more experiences I have, the more I realize I'm like both of my parents. The first time I started traveling, I remember my dad telling me, he's like, you can't run away from yourself. Wherever you go, you're going to be there. So like... You really need to, like, face it head on. I was like, don't talk down to me, but now I'm like, might be, might be onto something there. Julius expected that a change in the landscape would reshape his mind, and it did. But it's most empowering if you do change in a familiar setting because you're, like, a different person in the same environment. I mean, I feel like I definitely quit my old life of being very cynical. Like, I, f- I feel like I am living a new life, but I'm just in my hometown. What do you think quitting means to you now? I feel like quitting isn't just a negative thing because I, I feel like, you know, all oh, you're a quitter you know, or something like that. It's also can be a very positive thing where it can be life-changing and it can just be for the best and it can just make you a happier person overall. It's showing that you have power over your own life. Like, I'm in control and I'm quitting this because I can
A few weeks after Alan last talked to Julius, Julius sent a voice message. He was on the road again, this time in Europe. What's up, dude? I've just been super, super busy this past uh, this past week here in here in Ireland. They drink Guinness and they talk funny. I'll be here in Europe for like three more weeks, I think. That's just what I'm feeling. I really want to go back to Montana and just climb some more mountains and just go back home. Yeah, hang out with my friends and family. So that's that's the Julius Lord timeline right there. So there you go. Thank you and uh, uh, join us again. That story was reported by Alan Hinnich. You can find the rest of his oral history interviews at generationpandemicproject.com. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer, and we had additional engineering from Adam Staniszewski. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.